And um, also thankful because I was given um, to talk about Gideon. How many of you have ever read the story of Gideon? Well, I'm going to give you uh, quite a bit about Gideon today, and then I'm going to challenge you that it's quite a, a story to study. But um, also just uh, the whole book <laughs> of Judges, really. Um, when I was really praying about what the Lord wanted me to share, two weeks ago I had something drop in my spirit, and I'd just been kind of praying through it. And um, I then finally decided what I felt like, that yes, this was what I felt like God laid on my heart. So I came up with this title, because I love titles for my messages before I get started writing notes. It's always been a thing with me. Warriors fight with spiritual instinct, not experience. So I think it's a bit of a strange title, but I'm going to explain that throughout my message. So warriors fight with spiritual instinct, not experience. You know, to give you a bit of history, um, obviously, uh, those of you that know, the Israelites were just those people that constant disobedience. And when you read the book of Judges, you read it over and over about how that things would go well and they would, you know, God would have mercy on them. And then the next thing you know, as soon as that would happen, something else would take place and they would go right back to dis disobedience. And there were lots of leaders in the book of Judges that God used. I mean, we've already heard uh, talking about Deborah. Today I'm going to be talking about Gideon, Samson, just to name a few. They had some amazing leaders. Um, but they just, you know, had this thing about obeying God and they would see things go well and then the next thing you know they would be right back in the same place. And I wonder, I actually wrote a question here. How many times have we lived our lives the same way? We see God do amazing things. We see God do miracles in our life. And we're on target. We're right there. And then as soon as something goes wrong, we're right <clears throat> back to where we were. So um, I actually... Uh, was thinking that the book of Judges would even have made a very good movie. So if you think the Bible is boring, definitely read the book of Judges. You'll see that it's not very boring at all. But um, Gideon, so I'm going to be reading today. If you want to keep your Bibles open, I'm going to be reading out of the book of Judges in chapters 6 and 7. And Gideon is kind of a guy who's small. Um, according to him, he's a nobody. If you read uh, verses 15, uh, I'm just going to read in chapter 6, verse 15. I've laid my Bible up here, and I'm using the Amplified. It says, Please, Lord, how am I to rescue Israel? Because, behold, my family is the least significant in Manasseh, and I am the youngest, the Amplified says, even the smallest in my father's house. But the Lord answered him, I will be with you, and I love what God said here. You will strike down the Midianites as if they were only one man. Now, so here we go. He's, he's already proving not to have a very healthy self-image of himself, isn't he? And sometimes as Christians, we have a habit of doing the same, of speaking negativity 
over our own lives and about ourselves. And I know uh, Pastor Daniel mentioned it, I think, last week about how that we might think that's humility or it's holiness. But, you know, it's really quite the opposite. We ought to be speaking positive of ourselves. And isn't it amazing that when God sees something in us that we don't even see in ourselves? And I think it's quite something when you think about the fact that God can look down and he can see things in us that we don't even recognize in ourselves. But we still should always try to reflect a wholesome, God-centered self-image. Now, this is not really part of my message, not what I'm going to be dwelling on today about healthy self-image. But in my Bible, there was an amazing... Um, just a whole write-up with scriptures and about how to have a healthy self-image. So I took a picture. I made copies today. I even have it. I'll have at the back just a code you can scan if you want to save it on your device. But it's a great thing for you to keep to help you have a healthy self-image with scriptures just to help speak over your life. But moving on with Judges 6, I'm going to move over into then verses 18 through 22. And this is where Gideon is starting to get prepared for what God has for him. And um, when you start to read in these scriptures, you'll start to see where, <clears throat> excuse me, the Lord is preparing. He's getting him to put this altar together. And then um, all of a sudden in verse 22, when Gideon realized without any doubt Finally, in verse 22, Gideon admits and realizes, without any doubt, oh, this, this is the angel of the Lord. And he says, oh no, Lord God, I have now seen the angel of the Lord face to face, and I am doomed. But I love when it comes back and it says, the Lord said to him in verse 23, peace be unto you. Do not be afraid, you shall not die. And this is where in verse 24, after he receives this confirmation, he starts to build an altar and he lefts it there, leaves it there. You see, Gideon's experience, when I talked in the beginning about that warriors have to be led by their, their instinct, their spiritual instinct and not their experiences. And that's because that he thought his experience had told him he was a nobody, that there was no, nothing he could do. He came from a small tribe. He was part of a minority. So in his experience and from what he understood, and even there's a possibility of the fact that he was considered uneducated. But then the angel of the Lord came and spoke otherwise. And I want you to notice that it says again in the, in the, in the last part of verse 16 when I said, you're going to strike them down as though they were one. So they had chosen Gideon for this, and, and he's starting to see, wow, I may not be a nobody, but here's the angel the Lord said, not only am I going to be used mightily, I'm going to strike down my enemy, the whole enemy, as though it were one person. So I want to give you a word that I really felt like the Lord laid on my heart from just studying in Scripture, and that is, God will always give you a word that will require spiritual instinct to override your experience. And the reason I love that is because the enemy loves to remind us 
what experience that has taught us or what we might have gone through before. So in other words, it's the way we've always done it. So the enemy wants us to get dwelling on the fact that maybe, you know, Gideon was taught and he was told, hey, you know, you're never going to amount to anything. You're just a small little guy. You belong to a small tribe. No one's ever going to hear about you. But now suddenly the angel of the Lord has spoken and now it's beginning to teach him that this is what he needs to listen to to override the experience that he has had been taught. So our experience is used against us to try to get us to abandon our spiritual instinct. I'll give you some, some practical examples. Our spiritual instinct tells us we ought to be praying, worshiping, getting into the Word of God. How many times have we said to ourselves, why now, you know you should be reading the Word more. You should be praying more. You've told yourself that. But the world has conditioned us to do other things and to let our, our lives be filled with other things around us. Sometimes even our experience in religion has taught us habits, things that we experienced when we were younger that actually override spiritual instinct and, and override what God is actually saying. I, I'll take communion as an example. When I was growing up, communion was, we were always told, if you're a member, you can take communion. If you're visiting, you're not allowed to take communion. You can't show me anywhere in the Bible where it says that. But, spirit, but our experience from what we learn in religious habits of certain things has taught us that this is the right thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the God thing. It's the spiritual instinct. There's a few others. You know, man-made religion has taught people lots of things. There are churches where, you know, only the priest or the vicar can give the communion because according to them, that's the way it's supposed to be. And then you move on and, you know, you hear about, uh, I know when I was growing up, you know, I, because I was a young child and the way that church was always done, I always thought three worship songs, that's it, hand it to the, the preacher. No more. Just three. And these are things that when you grow up with, you wonder and you begin to ask yourself, is, is, that, is that because that's the way it's supposed to be? Or is that because just experience has taught me that this is the way it should be all the time? And so when we start to listen to our experience, we start to realize that our spiritual instinct, or when we hear from God, it's difficult to go against that and do the opposite because experience has taught us something completely on the other side. Are you following me? I'll give you another example. The raising of our children. This is not to upset anybody, but it's just to point out some truths. Experience has taught us that the government and the church teaches our children right from wrong. When our spiritual instinct should be teaching us that every parent who brings a child into this world should be responsible for teaching them right from wrong. That's not something that should be left to the government to do in public schools. That's not something that should be left to the church to do on a Sunday. Because when you ask yourself this, 90 minutes 
more or less on a Sunday that we have your child is not near enough. It's a supplement. It's an addition. But instinct has taught, you know, experience has taught us just send them off to public school and they need to be teaching my child this or they need to be teaching my child that. If we, on our and our home, if we're raising our children right from wrong and we're teaching them the word from our home, when you send them to school, you won't need to worry because they won't be relying on the government to teach them right from wrong. They will know that because you are the number one parent in their life or grandparent, whoever it is that's raising them, that should be teaching them that. I remember when I even when I went to Catholic school, it was the only school I could go to when I was in Colombia because the, the bilingual school that I was supposed to go to closed. And they were close to Americans, I mean, because they were full. Legally, they weren't supposed to do that. And I remember, I thought, oh, couldn't be too bad going to a Catholic school. And uh, my mother said to me, don't forget what you've been taught from the Word. You've got to stay strong and true to what you know is right. I'm not asking you to make a nuisance of yourself, but you're not to participate in what you know is not right. And I remember in class one time when we were, they were always asking um, how many Hail Marys we had said and how many uh, images or uh, gods or you know, idols that we had said certain prayers to. And I just kept quiet. I didn't say anything. Finally, the day came where the teacher said to me, uh, Wynell, I haven't heard any response back from you about what you're doing. I said, I don't do that. She said, well, what do you mean? I said, I don't even know why you are praying to cement and wood and all the rest. I pray to a living God. I would never pray to your idols. You can't, you can't say that. This is the Catholic class. And I said, well, I'm sorry. That's not what I've been taught. And I've kept quiet to be respectful. But I know what God's word says. And, you know, you, even if you want, can talk to God right here and now. And she said, be quiet. Sit down and be quiet. So this time went on. The day ended up to where, as they kept asking other different questions throughout the semester, I finally ended up having to go see the headmistress. And I just, I was not mean, but I just explained to her what I had been raised up and taught. Now, I was 12 by now. And she said, I don't know what to do with you. And I said, well, all I can say is I'm not doing what they're asking of me in class. If you want me to stay here... I'm perfectly happy to just sit there or whatever you want me to do. And in the end, she said, I think you'll just sit in the office with me and we just won't count that as part of your class. The bottom line is, my parents had raised me on the word and taught me the word at home, taught me what was right from wrong at home. So I think what we have to remember is we can't allow... So my experience, what I had been taught, my instinct was... I knew what God's word said, and even though they were trying to teach me the opposite, I knew what I knew was right from what my parents had raised me on. So it's about knowing how to override that. So moving back to Gideon, here he's heard the angel of the Lord. He's got his first assignment. 
And his first assignment is in chapter 6, verse 25, he tells Gideon to go and tear down the altar of Baal. Now, you know, here he is. He's afraid of his father's household. He doesn't want to do this in daytime. So he gets himself ten men. They go at night. They tear this altar down. And then the next day, they want to execute him because they discover that it was Gideon that had done this. Thankfully, you see in the scripture where that Gideon's father speaks up. And he says, let Baal speak for himself. Well, I think we all know how that went. (laughs) Waiting on Baal to speak back. So now if you read in verse 32, it says, And therefore on that day he named Gideon Jerubal, or Jerubal, meaning let Baal plead because He had torn down his altar. So now moving on down to verse 34, it says, The Spirit of the Lord has now clothed him and empowered him, and an army is called together. Now once again, here's Gideon's experience coming through. Experience has taught him maybe from watching other armies or other people fight that you need thousands of men to really win the battle that he's going to have to win. And the battles that he's about to face. And he, he thinks that numbers are where it all counts. So his experience is even dictated to his faith that in order for him to be able to win, he's going to have to have a lot of people. So lesson number one, I want to say here that learned by Gideon. Spiritual instinct says, be God confident, not self-confident. Amen? Come on, say that with me. Be God-confident, not self-confident. You see, experience says trust yourself. And yourself is saying you need a lot of men with you because you're just one little guy. You're going to need a lot of people to win this battle. So finally, here comes Gideon's big main assignment. And in verse 36 to 40, now I want to tell you that there's really, I can't find it, and if there is, I'll be corrected afterwards, but to my knowledge, I don't know of any other place in the Bible where a man puts and asks for a fleece to be put out. Now, when I was growing up, I was taught that what Gideon did really was not right. And I was also taught as a youngster that we should not be putting fleeces out before God. Anyone else get taught that? Now, I'll tell you why. Because... In actual fact, it's like a way of testing God, isn't it? God's spoken, he's told us what he wants to do, but we feel like we need a sign. And and we're all about the signs. So the scripture actually says, if you read 36 through 40, it says God honored his request with a fleece. But it doesn't say, yeah, you know, that's really what God expected him to do. So I don't believe we should get into the habit of putting out fleeces and testing God. I think that, you know, when we're constantly looking for signs, I think it's great to, you know, you get a word. I think you definitely need to ask God for confirmation, and you try and you weigh that word up. It's very important. But it's not necessarily that we always have to keep having signs in order to believe and have faith. So now Gideon has been told that his big assignment is rescue Israel. 
Now, can you imagine? Here's little Gideon, and he's thinking to himself, Oh, my goodness, I, I went and I tore down the altar of Baal in the middle of the night, and I was nearly executed for that. Now I've been told that I'm going to rescue Israel. Now, this is really the whole main purpose in the story about Gideon. is about the fact that, you know, even though he died at a very advanced age, and I will tell you that he also left 70 sons. That's right, 7-0. Now, he had a lot of wives. Don't go get any ideas, guys, because that does not mean that you're supposed to do the same. <laughs> I actually asked Paul and... Uh, uh, Josiah this past weekend I said hey have you guys ever wondered why back then were they allowed to have so many wives <laughs> and not now no one could answer that I can't even answer that I don't know but what I will say is Gideon made a big mistake that a few other leaders also made out of all the wives he had 70 sons he still had to go and take a concubine I thought, gosh, you know, the guy, <laughs> he must have been exhausted, but he still, you know, wanted the concubines. <laughs> we talked with this with the students, you know, with Abraham and Hagar and about what happened with him and his concubine. And for those of you that don't know, that's like having a mistress on the side, you know. <laughs> so, and unfortunately, and, and this is not my message either, but just so you know, if you want to know how interesting this book really is, Gideon has Abimelech. And Abimelech was from the concubine, and later you'll see what happens. It's absolutely horrible. But moving on to the rescue, we go to chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. I want to show you here how that Gideon has an army. If you do the math right, he starts with approximately 32,000 men. Come on, say that with me. 32,000 men. That's, that's a lot of men. And when you're a little guy, I bet you're thinking, this, this is good. I've got 32,000 going to go out with me and fight to rescue Israel. But then God speaks. And what does he say in verse 2? There are too many people with you for me to hand over Midian to them. Otherwise, what does it say? Israel will boast about themselves saying, my own power has rescued me. God's all about the glory. He's all about receiving the glory from everything that we go through. He wants us to know that He can do whatever He needs to do. He's the God of impossible. And He doesn't need 32,000 men. He wants us to know because it's not by your might, it's by mine. And I don't share my glory with anyone. And so then he goes on and he says in verse 3. Now, by now, I'm sure that lots of these guys probably were trembling and in fear. And he says, let everybody that's afraid go home. How many would have gone home? I bet a lot of you would have. Because you're thinking, yeah, I ain't doing this with this little guy. Forget it. I'm out of here. Experience teaches us 
that when the obvious sounds ridiculous, fear causes us to hesitate, and even at times we become double-minded. How many times have you felt like God's told you to do something, but it's so ridiculous and so out there, you think, nah, no, this definitely is not God. I'm not going to do this. And you start to get afraid, and you're thinking about all that's going to happen. Spiritual instinct teaches us, yeah, it's okay to be afraid. Fear comes a knocking, but let's let faith answer the door. Come on now. Let's let faith answer that door to the fear. It didn't say you don't have to be afraid. It said fear not. Why? For I am with you. So he said you can be afraid, but let faith answer the door knowing that I'm the one that's going to do this. So even though it sounds stupid, Gideon, Let all them who are afraid go home. How many went home? 22,000. If you're doing the math, that leaves 10,000. Now, I actually wrote in my notes here, because I kind of like to bring, you know, a little reality. I'm sure Gideon's probably thinking, cheers, God, appreciate that. Just got myself down to 10,000 men now. But then he starts to think, okay, okay, 10,000 men, yeah, that's pretty good, I got this. 10,000 men, that's still a lot of people, yeah, we can do this. And then God speaks again. Verse 4. Get in. Still too many people. Have you seen who we're going up against? Now, he gives him a bizarre test, which, well, I think it was bizarre. Because he said, you know, there's something he wants him to do. He says, I want you to take them down to the water. I'm in chapter 7, verse 4. And I want you to test them. So everyone, when they go down there, I want you to watch And those who lap like a dog, and I want you to watch those who kneel down to drink. Now, you know, you're thinking about this. How many of you have ever felt like that God's asked you to do something really crazy or bizarre? You see, God likes to do that. Have you you wondered why? Because he likes to do that. Because it means he has a chance to prove he is God and that you can't do this. So here we are. I've got another lesson number three here. Sometimes God works through our weaknesses instead of through our strengths. Amen? He likes to work through our weaknesses instead of our strengths. Why? Because experience says depend on your strengths, your abilities, your talents, your natural ability. But spiritual instinct says, God says, I'm in control and I want to work with your weaknesses because I'm going to show you who I am. I want you to know that you don't need anyone else. You just need me. So, we have a lot of natural ability involved, which is why I think that when God feels like he's not going to get the credit, he knows how to dwindle things down. So, here we go. He watches them and he says, Take the ones who are laughing like dogs. How many is that? Verse 7. 300. He's gone down to 300 men. Now, 
I'm sure by now that they're definitely trembling and thinking, how are we going to do this? But remember I said that God said, lest they say it was with their own power, this is why you have too many men. And then verses 16 to 21, it goes on to explain how that he's going to separate them and put them into groups. But before you move on there, I want you to come back to verse 14 in chapter 7. He has this dream. This dream is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and the entire camp into his hand. When Gideon hears the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down in worship. He's already been told, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hand. Now, he has not fought this battle yet. So, before I share with you my next lesson learned here, think about this. He doesn't even, he's not even gone to battle. He's lost down to 300 men now. And now they're telling him, arise, you've got nothing to worry about because I've already given you the camp of Midian into your hand. Hey, so what he's talking about here is you need to proclaim the victory before you even go to battle because I've already promised you this is what you are going to have. Lesson learned here. Start proclaiming your victory before it has been won. Because when you move down to verse 19, it says, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him, because they've separated into three groups, they came to the edge of the camp and beginning the middle watch where the guards had just been changed and they began to blow their trumpets. You see, spiritual instinct tells us we need to wait until the battle's won. I'm sorry, spiritual instinct tells us that we need to start praising and worshiping and declaring the glory and declaring the victory before the battle's even been won. Your experience tells you wait till the battle's been won. Wait until you see the victory but God wants you to declare it now so that you can see and so that you're speaking it with your own mouth you know God's going to give it to you hallelujah you know he's going to give it to you what is God asking you to do today he wants you to demonstrate your faith he wants you to rise up He's saying, I wrote down this challenge. What are you slightly fearful of? What kind of clutter and stuff have you filled your minds with? Why are you worrying about your weaknesses? Your lack of trust in God or your talking defeat before you even have the victory. Not worshiping Him in spite of the circumstances and you're trying to fight the battle all by yourself. You see, when you're going through things, you've got to know that you know who your God is. You've got to know God. You've got to know He's a God of victory. You've got to know that He's a God of win. You've got to know that God is on your side. You've got to know that as warriors, you don't have to worry about whether you can or can't do this because He knows how to make up the differences. 
I said this long ago, but even with Moses, I don't believe that Moses ever needed Aaron. But because Moses felt like he couldn't do it on his own, he kept saying, I can't speak, so let Aaron speak for me. I don't ever believe that was God's plan. But Moses always felt like it was his weakness, and that's the reason he wanted Aaron. But this is what God wants us to know. In spite of your weaknesses, that's what he wants to use because he wants you to know that he's the all-powerful God. He's already got the answers and all you have to do is trust him hallelujah but you have to speak it out with your mouth you've got to declare it when you sing and worship God you've got to sing like you believe that hallelujah Woo, glory you've got to act like you're winning the battle I believe there was something a little extra that he asked them to do at the end of their battles. If you go to chapter 8, verse 4. I want to show you something before I start to wrap this up. Notice in verse 4, Gideon came to the Jordan, crossed over the river, he and 300 men. Notice what it says. They were exhausted. They were still pursuing the enemy. They were tired. But they kept going. How many of you get tired and weary and exhausted? Because you keep going. You keep persevering because you know where you're headed. You know what you've got to do to win. In verse 24. This is just a little extra that I put in here that I felt like was really important. He said, first of all, in 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon then said, I'm making a request that each one of you give me an earring from his spoil. And those, the Midianites, had gold earrings, which the, they had then given to them and they had wrapped and carried all that up once they had won the battle. And they said, we will certainly give them to you. Scripture says they took up an offering of about 1,700 shekels of gold, which I looked up as equivalent to approximately 3,500 pounds. And then the Scripture says in verse 28, and the land was at rest for 40 years in the days of Gideon. You see, I believe we're so consumed by ourselves today that when we do, hear my heart on this. We've been talking about a generous God today. When we win the victory and we win the battle, we love congratulating ourselves or buying ourselves nice things to reward ourselves for what we've just come through. But I believe what Gideon was teaching them here is bring an offering of gratitude to the Lord for what we've brought, we've come through with all these battles. And I believe that what God is saying to us is when you win that battle, maybe you have a big gain. Maybe you came out of it with a raise. Maybe you came out of it with something that was a huge blessing to you. I believe first and foremost what Gideon was teaching us there is first take your first fruits from that and honor God. With a heart of gratitude, 
bring it at his feet. I want to read you a quote by a man that I've been studying and following for kingdom education, Dr. Glenn Schultz. He says the following, God, not the government, is our supply and support. And the government has been ordained by God to punish evil and protect good. But the government was never designed to be the supply in order to meet the needs of citizens. When the government becomes the one that supplies our needs and wants rather than God, we end up worshiping the government instead of God. We look to the government to educate our children and feed our families and etc. and etc. I believe what is important here is we get wrapped up thinking that we have to rely on the world and on the government to supply what we need. But remember, I gave you a quote when I was doing the offering, I think last week, and I said, your boss may set your salary, but God determines your income. And the reason I said that is because it doesn't matter how much money you're set to make by whatever the government or the, the job that you've given. But what you have to know is that's not the end result because you serve a great big God. You've already heard Daniel talking about today. He's a generous God. He is your daddy. He loves you. He will never stop giving to you. He will never withhold anything from you. But you can't withhold from him. You have to be able to stand up and you have to know that when you declare your victory and when you're able to stand up and say, yes, Lord, I know you're on my side. I know that you're the warrior. You're the warrior and you're making me a warrior. And I thank God because maybe I don't feel like I can do it, but I thank God because through you I can. Through you I can. The world is trying to eradicate Jesus and make us believe that it's nothing more than a fairy tale. We have to stand up and not let that happen. We have to make sure people know that they may try to rewrite history, but they can't rewrite the word. They can't rewrite what we already know. You know, just on a side note, chapters 9 of Judges in verses 1 and 2. Remember I told you about Abimelech, the concubine's son? He wanted the people to kill off all 70 brothers that he had in order to erase Gideon's memory so that he could be the only one in power. This is a whole other sermon, but if you read about the word 70, 70 is a prophetic number. You notice, you know, Mo Moses appointed 70 elders. Gideon had 70 sons. Jesus talks about the 70 in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. The world may try to eradicate our memories and try to take everything away from us, but they'll never win. You're the warrior that wins. You've got God on your side, no matter what they do. You don't live by experience. You, live, you don't live by what the world tells you. You live by what this word tells you and what God is saying to you. You can take that to the bank. I want to ask you to stand. I believe that all of us can get in those times where that we feel like we might be in a rut. Where we feel like that we don't have anything else to give. Some of us may even have been fighting battles that we feel like What's the use? I've been fighting this battle for years and I still feel like I'm losing. I 
feel like what God is saying to you today is don't give up. Yes, I read the scripture to you because I wanted you to know even the warriors get tired. They get exhausted. They feel like just sitting down and quitting. But they know they can't because they've got the end in sight. Even when you feel like giving up, you have to know, Lord God, you win this battle. Whether it be here or there, you win. And I want to challenge you today that I hope with all the series and all the people you've heard about that you recognize that you are a somebody. And to stop focusing on what you don't have. Because whatever you don't have, God will make up the difference. And if you just lay it all out there on the altar, God wants each and every one of you. And I want to tell you something I really feel in my spirit. Many of us have drifted into coasting mode. Trust me, I know the pandemic is not easy. And I know it's still not over. And I know we have a lot to face. But we can't give up now. We have to know that God is still right here with us. People are still dying and going to hell. And it's down to us to evangelize them. It's down to us to invite them. It's down to us to reach out to them. And I believe more than ever in the last few months, in the last year, many of us have become way more self-centered than we should be. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm saying all of us. We can't coast now. We have to declare that there's still healing in the land. That there's still people that need to be saved. And we are the ones God chooses to use for that wherever you are. You are His instrument. And I'm asking you today to bow your heads. And if you feel like that you've, you're one of those that's been on that brink to where you've just sort of drifted into coast mode or to cruise mode. You say, Lord, now's not the time for me to give up. Now's the time to press in. Now's the time to even remember that even when Gideon thought he was a nobody, and maybe I feel like I'm a nobody, but God, you love using those of us who think we're nobodies. Lord, I pray for each and every person here. May they know, Lord, that you need them. You can use them. You have a great plan and harvest just waiting for them stir us up oh God stir up our hearts stir us up and help us recognize Lord we still have an assignment we still have an assignment to win the lost We should never miss an opportunity to invite someone to our services, to all, any or 
all of the special things that we're doing, whatever it takes to get them to hear the gospel. Use us, oh God. May we not be quiet. Lord, may we let our experiences die out and listen to you only and tune our ears into you. And Lord, I pray. I pray that you stir us up so much that this building will be filled to overflowing next Sunday for Christmas carols. I believe, Lord God, that people will be lining up at the door because they need to hear about hope and love. And we can take that to them. I believe, Lord God, that if we get busy, your house will be filled again. There's much to do. Come on, I want you just to say, use me, Lord. Come on, you, you can pray that in your own prayer. You can pray that your own self and just say, Lord, I want you to use me. Start showing me now who are those people that I can invite. Who are those people that I need to talk to, Lord? Shake me up and get me out of this cruise mode. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that we are victorious. I thank you, Lord God, that we've already won. And I thank you, Lord, that we will finish this year strong. Lord, we declare that we will finish this year strong. We declare, Lord God, that anyone right now listening to this, if they are unwell, we declare them healed right now in your name. Pain be gone. COVID be gone in the name of Jesus. And everything entitled and tangled with it. We declare healing in our land. We declare salvation in our land, Lord God. We need to start speaking up and worshiping you and thanking you, Lord God, that we've won. You win. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you praise for that. 